0: Daily,
2: the Premier League podcast.
3: This is Football Social Daily, the award-winning Premier League podcast. Football's coming home. No, it actually is this time, as England are one of the countries to host Euro 2028, the tournament returning to Britain and Ireland. But the three lions might not choose to qualify automatically will tell you why they're thinking about taking the tricky routes in a bit and Chelsea legend Eden Hazard has quit the game he cost Real Madrid more than a hundred million quid but now he's had enough welcome to FSD my name's Niall and a very good afternoon to Joel Tudor and Marley Anderson how you doing boys good morning yes good evening good morning good afternoon whatever he's done it again lads he's done I'm just it again. gonna continue
1: doing it now it's, it's become <laughs> part of part of who I am sun's out No football to watch from Man United for a change, which is absolutely fantastic for my mental health (laughs) and my blood pressure. Yeah, no Premier League football (laughs) to discuss, but a Premier
3: League legend, and I wonder whether he should be described as that, has decided to hang up his boots. Eden Hazard, the Belgian best known for his amazing spell at Chelsea, in which he won multiple titles, including the Premier League, has decided at the age of 32 that, He's done in the game. He's had enough. Retiring after four years at Real Madrid, of which he only managed 76 La Liga appearances. He's held his hands up and said, it is time to quit. So what do you think, Joel? How do you reflect on the career of someone who made a real impact in the Premier League when he was here?
1: I think a lot of people will look at the most recent form and think, oh, you know, it didn't turn out the way it was going to or the way it should have gone at Real Madrid. But when you look at his career, even from when he first came through at Lille, I remember in 2012 when it was between Chelsea and Manchester United to try and sign him from Lille, and everyone was waiting on his update to say who he was going to go to and then he just put that tweet out saying I'm going to the European champions and it just broke my heart that's why I've got such a love-hate relationship with him because it could have been very very different David Gill refused to pay I think it was 4.5 million to his agent at the time which looks absolutely poor business now but when you just look at what he achieved at Chelsea I mean I was just going through his with Hazard I don't like to talk too much about statistics because we were talking about it in our telegram group actually that Hazard's the type of player that you have to appreciate through watching him because even when you look at his Champions League record it is pretty poor for a player of his caliber and yet when you used to watch him he just gave such pleasure on the pitch just very aesthetic in the way he played everyone liked to just see him dribble and go past players with ease and He was just a very, very easy player to watch on the eye. And I think when you look at the way his career went, it was just a huge, huge peak, peak, peak. And then that huge, significant trough at Real Madrid, which I'm still quite baffled of what actually happened because at Chelsea, he wasn't even injury prone. When you look at the games that he played, 34 games, 36 games, 37 games, these are all Premier League out of 38 games. He had no issues whatsoever at Chelsea. And then you go to Real Madrid, and I think something's happened in that summer that he's gone to Real, whether it was poor preparation on his part, whether he changed his diet, whether it was his mental. I don't know what's changed, but as soon as he went in there, he got a hamstring injury, then he got a hairline fracture to his foot. And suddenly, he just could never recapture his physical health ever again, which is so strange considering how healthy he was at Chelsea. But ignoring the Real Madrid side, he's one of the best ever Premier League players I've ever seen and I think it's just a shame that the way in which his career has ended at 32 as well which seems quite young now considering how players are going on to Saudi at 36, 37 it does seem really young to go out of the game but he just I respect him for the fact that he recognises that he just can't reach that level. Maybe he's fallen out of love with the game. We don't know the ins and outs of what's happened. But I do think it's been probably a deeper story than what meets the eye at Real Madrid.
3: And you know what, Joel? Even though you're right and we see more players going on to play until they're 37, 38 now, you also, Marley, see more players retire at 31, 32. Whereas normally the sweet spot is mid-30s, which Azard I guess, is approaching. But... You know, Tiago Silva, we spoke about him on last week's podcast and he's 38. Zlatan Ibrahimović recently retired in his 40s. And you only need to look across other sports. Jimmy Anderson is still playing cricket at 41. Roger Federer retired at 40, I think, as well in tennis. So athletes now with modern sports science are able to continue for longer. But also, I think maybe there's more of an understanding of the mental side of it where when a player says that they've had enough and they're done and maybe have fallen out of love with the game, like Joel referenced, they're happy to just call it quits. And that sounds like that's what Hazard's done.
2: Yeah, and I, uh, I agree with what Joel said about him, you know, just having a bit of respect for him to to just say, you know what, I don't fancy this anymore at 32. And I know Real Madrid fans will probably be, be fuming that, you know, their their deal with him didn't go as as planned. You know, they were signing one of the best, probably the top five players on the planet um when they signed him in twenty seventeen, something like that. Um it was it was expected to, for him to be the latest, you know, piece in the puzzle and um and be, you know, the latest Galactico superstar type of thing. Obviously it didn't work, but you know, fast forward a few years and, you know, he's thirty two. Um yeah, it's young, but you know, he could have went he could have went to to Saudi, as we said, you know, he could have went and earned two hundred grand a week minimum um, and, and sat there injured and just said, sorry, you know, I tried to be fit and I was fit when I, uh, in stages, uh, thanks for the money and then retired at 34, 35 with another, you know, five or 10 million in the bank or whatever it would be. So I, I kind of like that. He's just said, you know, what? I don't fancy this anymore. My body isn't what it was. Um, and even though I'm only 32, my, my, my body's telling me I've had enough and that's, that's absolutely fair enough I think a lot of people would take the money and and draw it out longer um but hazard has has had you know since since the age of 18 he's been playing it every week 90 minutes every week getting booted around like he used to get you know some serious kicks and knocks and stuff and at five foot eight and you know 12 stone tops if that you know that takes its toll on you Um, And then later in your career, when you're quick and you're you're built on pace and agility, your muscles will start to fatigue different to a centre back, different to a guy who's six foot, six foot two. You know, it does take its toll on you Um, and it will do in later life. So why play for another three, four years and absolutely, you know, hurt yourself and damage your your future sort of health in in that way. Like, what's the point? Like, what's it really worth? You've you've proved yourself. He was one of the, you know, You could argue he was the best winger of his generation, and you know nobody could say no. He absolutely wasn't because you'd have a point. And the things he did in the game were were enough. Won the league with Chelsea. Won the Champions League, even though he didn't play that much of a part of it at Real Madrid. You know, oh, did he? Did, I think he got a hundred caps for Belgium as well, or there or thereabouts. So you know, he's he's done, he's happy. And if as long, as long as he's happy and healthy, then nobody can really say, oh, well, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. Because, you know, he's got that peace of mind and that's, that's nice.
3: 126 Belgium caps, Red and Hazard to go along with those two Premier Leagues that Marley spoke about, two FA Cups, two League Cups, two Europa Leagues, two La Ligas and the Champions League. He's won a hell of a lot in the game to retire at the age of 32. In terms of... Chelsea and their dominance in the Premier League I split Chelsea's success over two eras you've got Lampard Terry Drogba era and then you've got that Fabregas Azard that sort of era and no doubt that second spell of Chelsea dominance which Azard was a huge part of is probably what people best remember him for Joel in 2014-15 when Chelsea won the league Mourinho comes back Hazard plays a huge part, wins the PFA player of the season, Premier League player of the season. He was probably one of the best players, if not the best player in the world at one point. Is that an exaggeration or do you think that's fair?
1: It is. I think recency bias really blurs everyone's opinion of him because there was a long time during that four or five year period where he was being talked along the lines of, you know, around the Neymar, Bale, Hazard. They were like Robin. They were like the four top tier wingers just below obviously the aliens that are Ronaldo and Messi and it's just really easy to forget how soon he started his career you know at Lille he started in 2007 at at age 16 which is almost like similar to how Rooney first came into the game as a super young guy, was playing 30-odd games a season at such a young age, almost like what Bellingham's doing at the moment. I hope he doesn't kind of burn out because he is playing the ridiculous amount of games. And I was just looking at an interview, or not an interview, a post-match press conference that Mourinho did while he was there in his second spell uh, while he was managing Hazard. And he said after a game you need to be careful with Hazard and how the referees are treating him because there'll become a point in the game where Hazard's going to have to say goodbye to football due to the amount of kicks and bruises he's getting in the game because he doesn't get protected. And he's almost prophesied what's literally happened, which is that, he seems like like his body broke down on him as soon as he went to Real Madrid. And that probably is through a good 10 to 15 years of maybe lack of protection from referees. Maybe the fact that he hasn't looked after himself, I really don't know. But the fact that he's had to come out of it, uh, I say 32, but he, he pretty much was done at about 30, to be honest. When you looked at him at Real Madrid, it was way earlier than that. And that's cu- quite concerning for a player of his quality. But we saw it with Wayne Rooney. Uh, How he retired at 32-33 and he was as talented. But I
3: imagine it's not through want of trying to get back fit, Joel, because like you say, he's kind of not been with it even from the early days at Real Madrid. Through COVID, I don't seem to remember him really having much of a splash there. And yeah, I guess he's given it a couple more years to try and get himself back into it. And it's just not happened for him.
1: Yeah, exactly that. And I think when you look at uh, David Beckham's documentary, if anyone's not seen it yet, one of the biggest takeaways I got from that, even for a superstar like David Beckham, is just how difficult it can be to survive at Real Madrid when the things aren't going your way there. Especially with how demanding the fans are, how much pressure the president's president's gotten in because obviously it's a very different system to how it is in england where they have the socios who are very very demanding of the president and the president needs to bring success quickly or he'll get voted out and if you've ever, if you've seen the documentary, David Beckham was almost like a sink or swim spot when Fabio Capello came in, and you could probably see with that in Hazard, you know, he took the number seven shirt of Cristiano Ronaldo, who made such a legacy, the the best Real Madrid player ever, which is a ridiculous feat, To then have to take on his reign straight away, and then deal with all these injuries, injury concerns, It's just a snowball effect in Spain that I think you have real difficulty. Even Gareth Bale, despite what he did at, at Real Madrid. He still is almost portrayed as the villain there because of the fact that, you know, he whales Golf, Madrid and all these different things. But he was such a success there. He was massive success. And we've seen the likes of Kaka go there and really, really fail. So many world-class players have gone there. So I have sympathy, sympathy for him in that case because I'm sure it'd be a lonely place to be at Real Madrid when things aren't going your way.
3: And talking about the way he was kicked, there was statistics going around in the Premier League when he was playing Mali. About how Eden Azar was the most fouled player, not just in the Premier League, but at some stage in Europe. He had that low centre of gravity, that close ball control, the ability to shift his weight one way than the other. That was one of his key attributes, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, he was he was as good as anyone in the world for a few years. You know, he was he was a big game player as well. I remember when he, he won the league for Leicester? I was gonna and, say you know, he's not
3: just a Chelsea legend, he's a Leicester legend yeah. as well.
2: Yeah, they love him in Leicester because of that. Um did, did he score twice? I think he scored both goals, didn't he, in that uh, in that game?
3: Well, one of them the one, the one where he bent the, it most into the corner. Yeah, Yeah, like ninety-second
2: minute or something. Yeah, it was yeah, fantastic. Yeah, there's so many good goals he scored and you know, so many, you know, memories he made in the in the Chelsea team. But, you know, fair play to him. He he had them he had them things and I think, you know, Joel mentioned the telegram group there, if you if you're in it or whatever, if you if you read it after after this and you join it or whatever. You know, I said in there that I think he he didn't he, he sort of he get he give football what it is and he sort of just said, It's it's my job, but I am I am gonna enjoy my life a little bit and when he would you know the Spanish press would hammer him for coming back to Real Madrid after like a two month injury and then pre season and he was a bit fat. He had a bit of a fat ass and it was like, okay, he's he's been eating cake over so much. Yeah, so would I so would, you know, if I've been getting booted round for nine months, I'm going to have a Viennese whirl or two and a beer, you know, and a little gatto here and there. And then I'm going to work my arse off when the when the whistle goes. And then you know, if if I'm 30 and my hamstring goes, that's not a consequence of me in that gatto or that cake. That's a consequence of me giving everything from the age of 16, 17, and 18, playing 65 games a year on average, and then my hamstring giving up at 30 and turning to dust. Like, obviously, then, you know, everything, if you're not exercising, you're going to get a bit fatter. And he had one of them metabolisms, metabolisms where he would, you would put on weight quite quickly. And it w- it was hard to hide in that white shirt of Real Madrid. If you've got a couple of inches on you in the wrong place, you, you can see it. you <laughs> seen it with Ronaldo, you know, Brazilian Ronaldo, when he would come back from an injury at Real Madrid and he would fill just a little bit more of the shirt than he ever would. But he was still class. People call him Fat Ronaldo.
3: Ronaldo Nazario and he would still run rings around any person now he could be 50 stone and he'd still take anyone on not make you pull your pants down
2: make you look stupid 100%
1: I was just going to add as well uh, on Marley's um, backside point I always remember Yaya Torre talking about Edwin (laughs) I just got the quotes up here it's such a great interview If anyone's never never watched it search it up and he said, one time I was explaining to a journalist and he was laughing and he said, why are you laughing? He said, why are you talking about his bum? But his bum's there. when you, Wherever you put your feet, he puts his arse like that in the turn. <laughs> and it just shows. Yeah, but Yaya yeah, had was, a
3: bit of a back end on him as well, to be fair. <laughs>
2: Battle of the arses there.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not the sort of conversation I thought we would have been having on Football Social Daily this We've week. We've just
2: found our title for this episode anyway. <laughs> Battle of the
3: arses. <laughs> Battle of the arses, Yaya versus... Eden Hazard. Can we, um, Can we title it
2: Yaya's vs Hazard?
3: <laughs> Not sure that's quite hitting the SEO that we want to be hitting. To be fair, <laughs> yeah.
1: no one's finding <laughs> that.
3: <laughs> so Eden Hazard is retired from professional football. A Chelsea legend, probably a Premier League legend as well. One of the real memorable players when it comes to overseas performers. In the Premier League. Right. Next up on Football Social Daily, we're going to talk about the fact that England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland have been announced as joint hosts for the upcoming Euro 2028. Football is coming home. We'll talk about it. After.
0: I'm Alex Rodriguez and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week you're here as in conversation with business icons.
3: Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily, the award-winning Premier League podcast. If you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast platform, that way you'll never miss an episode of this show again. We'll be with you right through the international break. And before long, the Premier League will be back upon us. And before long, the Euros will be back upon us as well. Euro 2024 is at the forefront of most people's thinking at the moment but four years after that it will be Euro 2028 and it was announced this morning that England along with Scotland, Wales, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland will host the tournament in 2028 so much like Euro 96 where it was football fever and football's coming home the tournament is being hosted again in this country in Britain and Ireland so it will be split up over those countries but I guess we should see that as positive news, Joel, don't you think?
1: Can I just ask, first of all, how old all of us will be in 2028? 34.
2: You'll be 34? Yeah. In five years? Yeah. Christ. How old are you? I thought I was going to say I'll be 34 and I've just realised I'm 32 and 32 plus 5 is 37. So yeah, I'll be 37. 30- I'll be thirty-seven with a with a four
1: and a half slash five-year-old son. Thirty-seven, nearly touching the big four-zero. My life's about to change, lads. That's actually crazy. You could be taking your son to games. <laughs> How
3: big will your ass be with a
1: vehicle? Oh, <laughs> the size the size of Jupiter. It'll, it'll have rings. Oh <laughs> uh, god! Sorry, what was the, what was the question? now? <laughs>
3: well, the question was: Should we be thankful that it's back in back on this soil, and you know? The tournaments that... Well, the Prime Minister today, and I must be honest, I don't really pay a great deal of attention to what our Prime Minister says, but he says that we host tournaments better than anyone else does. That was a quote from Rishi Sunak this morning. So,
1: Well, these lot won't be in power by the time it comes around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, like you mentioned, if you take away the 2020-2021 Euro final... Well, I'm the only one here who's never been alive for a European contest in this country. So for me, it'll be a first one as it is. Um, I've always wanted one. I've never been to a competition, a World Cup, a European Championships competition and so to have it on our doorstep will be just such an unbelievable thing because i know of people who've been to these competitions and just the fanfare around it and how the atmosphere is i mean it already is incredible just when england play in a in a competition and you see the the fever mania building in all the different cities and all the flags are out and all the big screens are on in the different streets in the different cities it just brings a different kind of feel so i am looking forward to it in that regard but in terms of the football sense. I'm wondering if there's going to be less pressure on England because it's shared, but also more pressure in a sense that if we've still not won a competition by then. Is that going to be the last cinder of hope that we could potentially win something? Because on home soil, typically the the home nation, or less, I don't want to say England's the main home nation, but the, the best home nation, you would expect them to at least go all the way.
3: I know what you're saying. And you know what? I thought about this as well. England's chances in Euro 2028. And I guess it all depends on what happens in the tournament before. But if we just take it on face value right now, as we sit here, October 2023, Bukayo Saka will be 27. Jude Bellingham will be 25. Aaron Ramsdale will be 27. Declan Rice will be 30 something. So a lot of the players that England have got now, that Gareth Southgate has got in the team, will Marley be mature? and experienced senior players by the time that tournament happens.
2: Yeah. Foden as well. Madison might be around. Grealish still might be around. There's plenty there. It's basically like it comes down to who's going to be the centre forward because Kane obviously will be, be gone by then. Tammy Abraham maybe or someone else who we don't know about now might burst through as a, you know, somebody who's 17 now might be coming through as a, and end up as a sort of the next Marcus Rashford or whoever you want to sort of label them as so yeah there's um I, it does feel like england are about to win something and it's never really felt like that in my lifetime you know um 2010 world cup was shocking 2016 was shocking um and then since then we've got way way better and we're now establishing ourselves as one of the best in europe i'd say there's us, us and france are probably the two best teams in in europe and then sort of followed by spain um if Spain ever can create a centre-forward that can score goals, they'd overtake England probably in in terms of how they play, but they haven't got that yet. So you can't sort of judge them on that yet, in my opinion. But yeah, that's um it's the perfect way to win something, really. If you were to choose how to win a major tournament, you'd win it on home soil and you'd win it where you've been around a few stadiums as well. You know, you've been to... Um, you've been sort of around the country if you're playing games in London and Manchester and Newcastle and you know even even in the Midlands and stuff like that that's it's perfect it's a perfect excuse to go and win something um, obviously we'll find out in five years and we want to win you know Euro 2024 in what eight months time whatever it is but you know maybe we'll go into that as defending champions and become one of the first teams Somebody defend, somebody has defended it before I think but spain won it uh, 8 and 12 something like that yeah so yeah let's uh, let's win it let's win it twice lads and then let's win the world cup in the middle as well and bring on this golden generation <laughs> <laughs> very wishful thinking that let's just win everything like niall said you know when when ref- referees have just got to be better england have just got to win things just win
3: well before england can win it they've got to qualify lads and i know Easy. what you'll be thinking of course, they're the host nation, so they'll get a free qualification spot. Well, the problem with this bid, which has been successful, is that it's five football associations that have clubbed together to pitch for this tournament. Now, the Republic of Ireland are one of those. So are Northern Ireland. Wales and Scotland are the other two, along with England. And therefore, there are only two automatic guaranteed qualification spots for the host nations. Now, you'd imagine England, Joel, will qualify anyway, and they're actually in conversation with UEFA at the moment as to whether they can waive their automatic right to qualification for the home tournament so they can qualify by playing competitive matches. What do you think of that? Do you think that that's... A smart approach, because it opens up the element of embarrassment. England didn't qualify for Euro 2008, for example, because they were so poor in the qualification campaign, they never made it to the tournament. Now, you would argue that for a 24-team tournament with just European nations, England will be strong enough to qualify. I think that it's very unlikely that they don't. But what do you think of this approach that England are keen to take, that they'd rather qualify off their own back than being gifted the spot
1: automatically? It's quite a tricky situation, that not it? I don't recall there ever being such a an amount of teams involved in being a host, which has obviously created this kind of confusion of what do they do next with the qualifying.
3: Yeah. I, I guess the issue is technically it's the Republic of Ireland and the UK. It's Britain and Ireland's bid. So it's two countries, for want of a better term, two nations. Yet... Inside the UK, you've got four different countries, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland and England. So you've got different unitary authorities that it's all split up, lots of different FAs and that's where the confusion comes in.
1: Just put them all in a group. Whoever comes out alive in the last two gets to host it. <laughs> Something I mean, like that. yeah, I'm not sure that's a good idea, but yeah. <laughs> but it. It's it's a tricky one, that, because like you mentioned, I can only imagine, for example, we've just mentioned that Cardiff might be the host of the opening game. And if Wales are not the team that are there opening the competition, or if it's England not opening the competition in Wembley or whatever else, it is really embarrassing because like we've all realised, these tournaments are very, very rarely hosted at home. I mean, we lost out on the 2018 World Cup hosting to Russia, Um, and then obviously the Qatar bid failed so there's just a lot of difficulty just getting it here in the first place that's why I'm sure a lot of the home nations will probably be battling their own corner saying well we actually want automatic promotion automatic qualification because it's just so rare to be there in the first place so I'll be interested to see how they actually manoeuvre with that but as a football fan, you would want all home nations to be there. I mean, how disheartening would it be for a English fan or a Welsh fan or a Scottish fan or Irish fan to go into this tournament and your team's not even going to be representing you on your home stage? It's just a bit bewildering to me. So I hope that they can try and find a way, whether it's some kind of pass to a next qualifying stage if they don't make it out of the group. I don't know, some way to just allow them to give themselves more of a chance. But if, you, if you're if crap, you're crap, aren't you really? <laughs> if you can't qualify for Euros, I mean, it's the
2: easier one to qualify for, isn't it? So. I
3: think the thought, thought process behind it is, if all teams try and qualify, because there are only two automatic spots, Marley, then... Whoever basically misses out and you're thinking at this point it will likely be Wales or Northern Ireland based on the strength of the teams that we see right now, they will then be gifted those automatic spots. So basically you're hedging your bets. If you try and qualify off your own back anyway, instead of just accepting the free qualification spot then it kind of opens up that opportunity. So England might be perceived as arrogant instead of taking that spot and trying to qualify off their own back. But well, actually what they are doing is making it more likely for a Northern Ireland or a Wales to get a spot in the tournament.
2: Yeah, yeah that's that's one way of looking at it. The, the instant way I looked at it when I read this news was, um, was that England are avoiding that awkward um, sort of Logistical thing of everyone's going away on, a, on an international break to try and qualify for a tournament in twenty twenty seven, and you've got no game, so you have to organise friendlies against you know inferior teams or teams which are logistically hard to do, like Argentina or South American sort of sides that aren't playing as well. If that makes sense, so and then even if you do get those t- those kind of games. On and scheduled, it's a friendly and it's it's different. It's not competitive. You don't really learn anything in friendlies most of the time. Um, so there's two. It's sort of a two pronged thing of we'll qualify because we want the the games against you know you you'd call it proper proper teams who are trying to beat you and trying to qualify. I know England qualify comfortably nine times out of ten anyway um unless steve mclaren's in charge (laughs) but um yeah it's it's it it, there's two two ways of looking at it and i think they both work for for england um and the way we we've done this is you know we can we can almost help wales and northern ireland or republic of ireland or, or even scotland whoever it may be we can give them you know a free ticket and if they see it as arrogant you know that's that's their problem. At the end of the day, we're getting you to a major tournament because we want to qualify. We want the games, um, and we, and ultimately we want the biggest spectacle on our shores. You know, if we like, like Joel said, imagine the opening game at the Millennium Stadium and Wales aren't there. Like, what's the point? Who's? It's not a case of who's going to the game, but you're then banking on eighty thousand, you know, Dutch fans turning up and facing 40,000 Slovenians or something like that, you know, it might not sell out. So you need the locals to go and the locals are less likely to go if their team isn't there, if that makes sense.
3: Yeah, it does make sense. And you know what, part of the thinking comes into that when it comes to selecting what stadiums, Joel. So actually, because it's a split tournament over different countries, Dublin will have some games, which they were supposed to have during Euro 2020, but during the COVID restrictions in Ireland at that stage under those restrictions they weren't able to host any matches at the aviva so it's good for the republic of ireland to get some games obviously northern ireland belfast will have some games cardiff glasgow will have a few games but it means that there are only six stadiums in england that can be used so in terms of premier league grounds because wembley is always one it's the national stadium will probably host the final tottenham hotspur stadium newcastle etihad the new everton stadium in liverpool is one of the venues that's going to be used for the Euros. What do you make of the selection of the grounds? Are you happy with it?
1: Yeah, I was reading about what stadiums hadn't been included and why. And for Old Trafford, that was a glaring omission from the actual list. And the reason that they gave is that there might be potential for a renovation or even stadium change during that time. I pray to God that that is the case. And I can already see it now where it comes to 2028 and we're just seeing the Old Trafford roof still leaking watching all the games be held at the Etihad over the over the other side of the river and we're still there like we've got Old Trafford that could have hosted any of these games so it's it is a shame because I would have loved to have seen a tournament game at Old Trafford, 100, would have gone to a few of them as well. Not as inclined to go to an Etihad one, I can't lie. But I mean, it is what it is. Even the the Emirates, Stamford Bridge, they've not been selected. I guess with England, there's a wealth of just top stadiums to choose from anyway. So there's always going to be a few that are going to be that are going to be omitted regardless. Some really top attendance stadiums as well. But of course, when you've got so many different home nations as well, you look at in Scotland, the capacities of their stadiums, the Aviva Stadium in Dublin, how big that is. Obviously, the Millennium Stadium. We've got such a rich wealth of choice, especially when you compare it to you know, Qatar that had to build these stadiums from the ground up. And we've got all the infrastructure ready in place, waiting to go, which even seemed baffling to me that we never hosted it in the first place. But it will be just so good to just have... Stadiums that are in the doorstep. And obviously, you need to cater for all the regional fans as well. You can't exactly have a whole cluster of grounds that are going to host games here in the Midlands when all of the Northern teams, especially as high north as Newcastle, won't have a stadium to actually host any games. So I guess they have to think about it geographically as well for the fans.
3: Okay, so the Euros are back on home soil, if you will, the home nations, and the Republic of Ireland will host the tournament in 2028. But it's opened up conversation about who's going to host the World Cup in 2034. Effectively, it's going to the Saudi Arabians.
0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
3: This is Football Social Daily. Welcome back. This is the award-winning Premier League podcast. And if you hit subscribe, you won't miss an episode again. You can also find all of our socials, including a link to our Telegram chat in the description of this podcast. Right We spoke about the euros being back on home soil in 2028 and we think to shortly follow will be a world cup in saudi arabia in 2034. now it probably shouldn't come as too much of a surprise with the amount of saudi money that's been invested in sport in recent years but the big shock here mali is the fact that no association has decided to put forward a bid for the 2034 world cup apart from saudi arabia so there's only one option
2: and it's the Middle Eastern country. Wow, um, is that? I think that's called winning a, bid, a bidding process by default, isn't it? Um, is it? Is it even time to put the thirty-four bids in? What? What? Year, yeah, what, it's
1: usually around a ten-year process, isn't it? It won't be for Got Saudi. I'll it. give you that. <laughs> It'll
2: be a 10 minute process for Saudi. <laughs> Here's an endless case of money. <laughs> can we have it? Yeah, of course you can. Yeah.
3: So obviously 2026 is the next world cup and that will be in Canada, Mexico and the United States. They're trying something similar across three countries in 2030 when Portugal, Spain and Morocco will host some matches. And then there
2: are also and some then randomly Uruguay. Yeah. yeah Paraguay. Yeah.
3: It's like a Hispanic world cup plus Morocco. Very strange, and so 2034. The bidding process is yet to be announced, but the only confirmed bid are Saudi Arabia.
2: Yeah, it's like, I mean, it, you know, if if they're in the bidding process, what does it come down to? Does it? We've they've already set the precedent with Qatar that it's not about heritage and and history. It's about it's about money. It's about also, you know, FIFA will hide behind the fact that it's um, uh, what's the word? Giving opportunity to to new countries, um, just the ones that happen to have absolutely lined pockets of of endless money. Um, but it is what it is. This is always going to happen. Do you think the past. this is
3: what Saudi have been building to? Not just with the investment in Newcastle, but the investment in the league. And then here we are. You know, eleven years down the line, they'll have a World Cup, and they're maybe putting the building blocks in place now with. Trying to establish the Saudi league with all of these players.
2: I don't think it was the end goal for them. I think it was a big milestone, but I think the end goal for Saudi is they just want to be, you know, taken seriously as a world as a world sporting power, as well as you know a source of of oil and and whatever. And without going into geopolitics too much, because I'm bored of it. Um, it's that's what they want. Um, the World Cup, I don't think it's to be all and end all I don't think it's the end goal for them. But like you say, you know, in, in ten years' time if they if they keep investing in the Saudi pro league like like they have this season, you know, we could we could go into that um that tournament conceivably with the the best or the second best or the third best league in the world. Um and who knows how the, the Champions League would have changed by then. Ten years time, you know, you could have you could have a worldwide sort of Champions League format. You never know, because with the money on offer, you know, if the, if the Champions League gets reformatted, you could have Al Ittihad in it and Al Nasser and, you know, the, the Middle Eastern sides as well. So you never know. They've, they've obviously got a plan. They're obviously sticking to it. They're, they're, there's nothing that hasn't been hosted or uh, involved with Saudi in the last five years. They've had big boxing fights. They've had UFC um, over there, they've had, um I think they've got two or three F1 races now. They've got their own Royal Rumble in the wrestling. They've got, you know, the football is, is, is kicking on as well. They're into tennis. They're into everything. Everything you can possibly have. So, yeah, the World Cup was just another thing that was going to happen sooner or later. And as soon as they say, we're going for 34, everyone else has just gone or will just go, okay, yeah, fine. You can have it because... We're not, we're not going to outbid you in the end, so it, it is what it is.
3: Now, America and Mexico will be well over 30 degrees in midsummer, Joel, but it's not Middle East heat. That's why the Qatar World Cup was moved to the winter because 50 degrees is the sort of temperatures you can expect in the middle of Arabia in June-July time, which is when the World Cup will be hosted. So there'll be similar logistical issues with a saudi arabian tournament in 2034 as we've seen with qatar this year and questions over whether it should have been moved to the winter and questions over alcohol which the kingdom has promised they will lift a ban on when the tournament is announced to be held there
1: yeah i think the issue with the world cup and what we're going to see is a bit of a trend over the next decades is completely joint bids whether it's three four five countries involved in it because it is expensive to host the World Cup even an Olympics a lot of countries now don't even want to host in Olympics because you have to have certain infrastructures in place you have to have specific stadiums aerodromes all these different things I mean you look at Greece if anyone's seen the structures that are in place there from the Olympics in 2004, no one uses them anymore. They're all derelict buildings. You look at Brazil when they hosted the World Cup in 2014. I mean, they had a stadium in Brasilia, the Manigar Stadium. Now that's being used as a bus depot and it cost $1 billion to create. I mean, for what? That's why the people of the country were protesting so much because they were thinking, well, should this money not be used on the people that are really needing it most in this country, not for football, as big as football is, these countries have a responsibility to their people as well and that's why you'll probably see less likely bids for countries that just simply cannot afford to do it because they incur such huge debts and such issues when it comes to the infrastructures and the roads and it's just, in my opinion, way better needed towards society rather than just hosting an event for a month i mean for what and then after that the infrastructure isn't even used anymore Well, that's,
2: that's why we're seeing joint bids as well joe like portugal like portugal and spain a big a big you know countries and they've got the the revenue and the infrastructure already and even they've gone oh, it's a bit much this who else can we have a morocco who obviously can't they haven't got the same infrastructure. They haven't got ten or eleven or twelve stadiums. They've gone, well we'll help you. And we'll split it three ways. You know, we'll split the revenue, the the cost of it three ways. And we're all geographically near each other. So that's why you are seeing stuff like that. And in the past we've seen um, you know, Japan and South Korea back in two thousand and two. Um and we've seen was it you was it Ukraine and, and something? Uh, it was meant to be in 2018 Poland was it Poland was it Um, was that Euro 2020 that was
3: 2000 2008 was Ukraine and Poland wasn't it it? what was the what was the 2021
1: that we ended up Well,
3: it was all all different countries wasn't it 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 was was the roadshow one yeah divvied around yeah
1: Yeah. I I think we're going to see a trend of that now I think in the future we'll probably see for example China hosting it probably end up seeing someone like Iran hosting it you know these countries they've just got endless barrels of cash where they can produce stadiums i mean i looked at the statistics of what qatar spent to host their world cup and what they spent was more than every other world cup before it combined which shows just the levels of money needed and even just like marley said portugal and spain have some of the best stadiums in the world some of the best stadiums infrastructure and yet they still have to host it together
3: when it comes to the stadium side of things there will be similar ghost stadiums lying derelict and unused in Qatar because the country simply doesn't have the population or the interest to attend football matches at random stadiums. I think, what was it of the stadiums in the Qatar World Cup? Most of them were in Doha. Like, how many s- stadiums does one city need? This isn't a mega metropolis like London is, where it's got multiple football grounds. You know, and you go back to the Brazil World Cup, the one in Brasilia. What about the one in Manaus? which is in is in, in the, the Amazon rainforest yeah. just off the Rio Negro you know part of the Amazon river it's completely remote and you know that's drawn criticism the fact that a stadium was built there that attracts very small attendances and you know there are sustainability the, questions as well say, aren't the, there?
2: the carbon footprint that they have to leave in that sort of jungle to build it and to to get to it and stuff like that all the pollution and yeah is it is it worth it probably not when you think about it
3: the thing is with this Saudi bid though is that it's already been backed by a number of other football federations around the world so even though there are no other confirmed bids (laughs) it seems likely that it will be them to host a World Cup yeah
2: because they all want a cut of that money don't they they all want you to come and buy the players from their league so you know if whoever's you know France is saying oh yeah Saudi Arabia yeah go on yeah go on you can have it we endorse it that's because Marseille, they're saying we're begging you to come and sign Matteo Genduzi from us because we want your money. We want the money to come in. You know what I mean? It's uh, it's all it's all very backhandy and it's a bit morbid when you think about it in detail and a bit uh, a bit dirty, but it is what it is.
3: All right. Well, Saudi are, albeit not officially, but nearly nailed on to be the hosts of the 2034. FIFA World Cup. Now, it is the international break, so you can excuse us for talking about international football and you can join the debate in the Telegram group by finding the link in the description. You can find our social media channels there as well. And later on this week, I think we're going to discuss whether we think ex-professionals should become referees or more so whether they should sit in the VAR booth. Now, I guess that kind of depends which professionals they are because some of them don't know what they're talking about on the telly, let alone when they're in charge of quite a few buttons and quite important decisions. But we'll leave that debate for the rest of the week on Football Social Daily. And you can join us by hitting subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. That way you'll be notified when a new episode is released. But from Marley, Joel, and me, that's it for today. We'll speak to you the next time on Football Social Daily. Bye for now. Football Social Daily is a voice work sport production for the Sport Social Podcast Network.